0: Welcome to Mostly Books Meets, the weekly podcast for the incurably bookish. We will be talking to authors and creatives from across the world of publishing and discussing the books they have loved. Looking for a recommendation? Then look no further. Head to your favourite cosy spot and let us pick out your next favourite book. On the podcast this week, we're thrilled to be welcoming novelist Sophie McIntosh. Sophie's first book, The Water Cure, was published in 2018 and was longlisted for that year's Booker Prize. In 2020 came her second novel, Blue Ticket, and on the 2nd of March this year, she published the haunting and dreamlike Cursed Bread, which was longlisted for the Women's Prize. Sophie was also included in the Granters Decennial or Best of Young British Novelist list. Sophie, welcome to Mostly Books Meets.
1: Hi, thank you so much for having me.
0: Our absolute pleasure. Now, Sophie, back when I started bookselling previously at Blackwell's, I remember when The Water Cure came out. And it was a favourite of mine at the time. And you did an event with uh, another novelist, Rachel Heng, who wrote The Suicide Club. You know, I remember that event and that being your sort of debut novel. Now you're three novels in. Obviously, you included on sort of the Granter list. Do you have a sort of a sense of, you know, I'm a an established novelist now or does that feeling never arrive do writers just spend their lives you know always feeling like they're the kind of the new upstart or what's the feeling for you
1: (laughs) that's such a good question yeah it's been something I've been thinking about lately with the grant list and just you know the concept of three books In I mean there was a time not that long ago when I couldn't even imagine finishing one book (laughs) Mm. Um, and I think every time I sort of sit down to write a book it still seems vaguely implausible that I will finish it and you know, I'm writing my fourth now and I'm still kind of Googling how to write a book. <laughs> how, how long should a book be? Um, so I think, you know, I, I definitely feel more established. But that sense of, I guess, like sort of unreality and a little bit of surprise and shock never really goes away.
0: Yes. Do you, I, I don't know, do you sort of walk down the street and then just sometimes have moments where you think, oh, yes, I've got three books out now. And, you know, and that means as well that, you know, I think when you uh, talking to other writers on the podcast, you know, when they have one book out, they realise all people are out there, they're reading that book. And that's a kind of exciting, but also kind of scary time when the book is kind of released to the world. But now you're sort of in a position where people will have a kind of a relationship with your writing, you know, they've read several of your books, and that must be a very interesting relationship to have with a a kind of readership uh, in those instances where you sort of come into contact with
1: that. Definitely, like, it's a really amazing experience whenever I read, whenever I meet anyone who's, you know, read all of them, and it's kind of like, it's just really cool to think of, I guess, my work in terms of a larger picture. Like, I, I think with a debut, you're like, OK, it's one book. And then, like, my books are not connected. But thinking of it in terms of returning to the same themes or similar themes. And, yeah, just kind of building up this sort of, of body of work sounds so cringe. <laughs> but yeah, it's definitely, it's so, like, nice to, um, you know, hear the perspectives of people who've read all of them. And to see, you know, people who do have that connection and stuff and yeah like like nice kind of moments like um my friend's on holiday in italy and she's in like a small town and she just went into the bookshop there in this small town and was like they've got your book like in it translated into italian and that's the kind of moment where i'm like okay like my book's like translated into italian and it's in the small town like not mm. really a touristy place or anything like it's kind of it's kind of real
0: yeah it really becomes its own uh beast doesn't mm. it by you know again from talking to other novelists i mean It must be bizarre and sort of thrilling to just go, oh, yes, there's an Italian translation. You know, it's migrated into a different uh, vocabulary almost. and, And that, I don't know, must be such an interesting feeling that this thing that you've sat with for months on end, worried over certain parts and other parts maybe have come easier. And then just once that's out, it kind of just sort of snowballs and kind of becomes its own its own creature.
1: Yeah, totally. I mean, I wish I could read every language so I could read my translations and see like... Um, the interpretation and stuff, like, I just think it'd be so interesting.
0: Yes, at least you can, enjoy, I think one thing, at least it's always fun, is um, getting to see the covers, even if you can't read the language, just seeing how the, kind of, the cover's been, uh, been interpreted. Oh, yeah, for sure. And and in terms of writing, you said there was a time where, sort of, you know, finishing one book didn't necessarily seem, seem possible. Have you always been, sort of, going back to, we kind of like to explore the lives of our guests and in terms of the books they've read, when you were younger were you always interested in the written word were you much of a reader were you interested in telling stories yourself
1: yeah I was a massive reader I really loved reading um I also really loved like drawing and I think you know as a teenager I kind of I found myself returning to writing um and I, I never really stopped reading but yeah returning more to writing as opposed to kind of more visual stuff because I was, I was quite into photography and yeah so that sort of sense of returning to written word and kind of getting more to poetry and realising how much I loved it. I remember I was doing a sort of uh, textiles course at college and kind of skiving off to go write in a cafe and feel like cool and French and then I kind of thought maybe I do want to move more into writing and I ended up then going to uni to do English and yeah but it was always kind of something I loved doing. I think I didn't really... I didn't, I guess, have much concept of the idea of like, you know, what does a novelist do? I was like, you know, you write, mm. you write a book and whatever, but, but I tried to, you know, write my first book when I was 17 in my bedroom and sort of, you know, getting like 3,000 words in and suddenly being like, oh, this is actually really hard.
0: This
1: yes. is <laughs> so really difficult.
0: Yes, it's interesting, isn't it? Because novelists touch our lives in in different ways, you know, even if you're not a reader, you might have enjoyed films that are adaptations of kind of novels. And yet as a job or as something to do, it seems to be up to... A lot of the time, novelists to kind of work that out for themselves. You know, you're you're not told when you're younger. Oh, this is how people, you know, write books. It's it's kind of never talked about as a, a career, hmm. and yet actually, it has you know a kind of a massive effect on the kind of cultural landscape of of our lives. So yes, you you get this uh, as you say, sort of people just going, wait, how do you how do you do this? How how, how do I actually do this? I
1: guess it's like as well, like novelist as a career, it kind of I just feel especially you know having chatted to lots of other people recently and, and like as part of the grant list and stuff it's just like it's not really it's, it's very rare to like just have a career as a novelist like I do other mm. stuff everyone kind of does other stuff <laughs> you know I, I do copywriting I teach it's it's kind of the idea of I guess like completely full-time sitting in a dressing gown sort of smoking having some deep thoughts <laughs> it's kind of doesn't really yes. that maybe was yeah like no, novelists like 20 or 30 years ago or something but um it's a lot more kind of I guess, fragmented
0: now. Yeah, it, has, it hasn't been uh, saved from the, the whole sort of portfolio career avalanche that's kind of overtaken everyone's lives of like having to sort of, yeah, juggle multiple things at once. And so, yes, when you were younger, were you reading a lot? Are there any books that you remember from your childhood that really sort of stuck out to you as titles that you enjoyed?
1: I was reading a lot. Um, yeah, I kind of, I kind of would read anything as well. I was in the library a lot. I always remember Junk by Anthony Burgess. Yeah, the young adult book about heroin. I I absolutely loved that and it kind of really stuck with me. Um, and I really loved The Magic Toy Shop by Angela Carter. That was kind of a really fundamental book for me. Like, yeah, I remember reading that and kind of just feeling so, you know, excited about words. Um, I was very like indiscriminate of kind of read anything that was lying around.
0: <laughs> <laughs> yes. Yeah. Uh, yeah. A hungry reader. I feel when mm. younger people particularly are into reading, they're sort of, you know, they're undiscerning in the best way in the sense of, you know, they're willing to read anything. I think it's as we get older that we can become a bit constricted, you know, uh, even I find myself working in a bookshop, you know, realizing that, oh, actually, I haven't read this type of book for a long time. You know, it's easy to kind of get stuck in your in your area. And you mentioned poetry was an interest because one thing I do remember when The Water Cure came out that um, I think I remember maybe some of the press we received or things like that that you were sort of described as a poet who was then you know writing a novel is poetry still a big part of your life are you publishing poetry in in pamphlets and things like that or
1: um... no unfortunately not i haven't written poetry really for ages or if i do it's kind of just for myself really and but i think it's kind of nice to have something writing wise that is just for yourself i think mm. You know, Absolutely. anytime I'm writing anything, it's always that instinct of like, oh, is this a short story? Is it a novel? Does it have legs? Like, you know, can I use this for something? Um, mm-hmm. With poetry, we a bit like, no, I'm just like literally going to write it in a little weird document, never show anyone and sort of have this little thing for myself and sort of enjoy it. Maybe if I wrote anything good, <laughs> I would I would consider it. But um, yeah, it just, it feels like kind of, I suppose it's like almost an equivalent to like a diary for me. Um, mm-hmm. Something kind of quite private, but it's nice to kind of, return to that space.
0: Yes, yeah, because it's something I've always felt, I mean, my knowledge of poetry is um, abysmal, it's terrible, but one thing I've always felt reading your work is there's the kind of poet's kind of deep understanding and kind of use of language in the sense of in very few words a lot can be evoked and there's a lot kind of underneath the surface and that's something that's really you know stood out for me in terms of your writing and is that something that you've you know you've always sort of gone for or is that just something that naturally is that a silly question because for you you're just like well that's that's how I write you know it's not something I've sort of consciously thought about or yes
1: no thank you so much that's really nice um yeah no it's definitely something I consciously think about I think I love like giving that attention to language and kind of trying to create these images which feel very specific and like very kind of visceral it's definitely a conscious choice, and they, like kind of the images, like don't come out like magically like that. I'm a massive drafter, mm. so I'm always thinking yes. about, you know, how can I kind of, I guess, get it as distilled as possible, but as kind of evocative as possible. And yeah, like I guess, kind of paying attention to that sort of aesthetic sense of it, it's really important. So I think it's just it's part of the whole experience of like you know of reading my books. It's kind of that sense of atmosphere, I think. Um, mm. But yeah, in first drafts, often like when I'm writing, is it's quite like Maybe not, not as beautiful, for sure. <laughs> um, mm,
0: but, of course. But it's like yeah. kind of
1: finding those images and those kind of moments and being like, ah, okay, this is what I'm trying to like get at. And like kind of bearing that in mind and sort of polishing up the rest.
0: Mm, that kind of, yeah, uh, sort of intense fine-tuning yeah, is sure. certainly something I, I've i always got from your books. It feels, you know, cringe to say, as you said earlier, you know, because it's a bit of a stereotype, but, the t- you know, about sort of every word kind of counting Mm. um you know i think that's something you get from a lot of books but maybe some more so you know than others i feel yours are a very yeah each word has a kind of a weight to it and so in your teenage years did you ever have a slump in reading was there ever a time where you thought oh actually you know books aren't for me or did that stay pretty consistent for you
1: I guess I was definitely more of a reader in my kind of earlier teens. I think in my late teens, I maybe just got a little bit distracted by partying and having having friends and sort of running, running around. But definitely, like, writing was like always there for me and it was always kind of my favourite thing and always a really nice way to, I guess, like, sort of, reconnect with myself and stuff I think mm. um well in my late teens I guess the internet sort of exploded a bit so I probably spent more time on the on the computer and yep. you know chatting to randoms on MSN and um yeah on MySpace and so
0: <laughs> uh MySpace <laughs> we MyS- <laughs> yeah and MSN uh, I think about the MSN days, sort of. um Yes, it was a bit of a. I mean, the internet is still a kind of a wild west in many ways. But then we were just kind of thrown into this world, and there was no, there was no precedent for anything. Everything was just,
1: yeah. It's kind of, it's kind of cool because like having that. um I guess the years before where I was just in a small town in Wales and could just kind of read what I wanted and explore like my interests in a way that wasn't like, influenced so much by the internet, and then yeah, it kind of felt like there's so much overwhelming information now and you can go on Twitter and have like a million recommendations and you see what else is reading. It's almost like, yeah, when I was kind of a younger teenager, I guess, I was just kind of a bit more isolated and was just kind of picking up whatever looked good and, you know, sort of opening myself up to these maybe things I wouldn't read now. And, yeah.
0: Yes. Yeah. Absolutely. And where was, sorry, that, that small town in Wales, where was that? Uh, where, where Where did you grow up?
1: Uh, it's called Narbeth in Pembrokeshire. So it's sort of oh, South West
0: okay. oh, oh, Pembrokeshire, lovely. Yes. Yeah. Yeah. Very beautiful. Yeah. Pretty very beautiful. beautiful. <laughs> Do you ever go back there in terms of like, I don't know, are you, uh, again, this sounds so serious to us, but are you inspired by the landscape of your childhood mm-hmm. or is it just, you know, is it just part of the, the makeup of your life?
1: No, totally. I like, I, I love it there so much. And I actually set the water cure in a climate change version of one of the beaches like that's one of my favorite beaches so it's sort of a Wales um it's not really explicitly said but there's kind of clues like um two of the men have like Welsh names and you know I was thinking so much of the of the landscape specifically and what it might be like in a kind of you know a couple of decades when climate change had sort of (laughs) heated it up a bit yes
0: yeah yeah, yes yeah (laughs) it's it's funny to me like
1: i really can imagine it really specifically and um i kind of love love it when people kind of discover the actual beach too when it's based on it's called barafundal then you're like oh i can like visualize it
0: oh i'm definitely after this i'm gonna look that up i certainly remember it being in my head it was still quite despite the climate change aspect it was still quite green i remember still feeling that it was a very sort of green landscape
1: yeah definitely green and sort of lush <laughs> but there's like yeah there's a whole kind of um it's called like the stackpole estate there's like kind of um a whole house there and i didn't really base it like on that specifically but definitely like the surrounding beach and it's a really amazing beach like you kind of get to it you're like it feels like it shouldn't exist in wales <laughs> it feels like something from like you know it's really otherworldly like like a kind of paradise
0: yes yeah and do do you find because of course with Cursed Bread there's a real life kind of um basis for the story that then you've taken and you've said you know this is a fictional story but that's kind of where the idea kind of bounced off from when you're creating your books do you like that kind of sort of um bit of reality to kind of spring off to create your book or or do your ideas come from elsewhere
1: no definitely I think yeah when I was writing Cursed Bread and I did kind of Maybe naively, I was like, oh, it'll be easier this time because I'm kind of working from a real event. I'm working from real life. And then kind of when I started writing it and I couldn't actually really do a lot of research firsthand because of the pandemic. And then because I was writing it in the pandemic, just felt like a really different headspace to be writing a book. And suddenly I kind of was like, oh, um, actually, what I'm interested in exploring is not actually the event, but more, you know, a world kind of connected to the event that is... I kind of think of it as almost like historical speculation of exploring the kind of the like relationships and these themes of obsession and actually not really you know doing a retelling of the novel and it's kind of funny I kind of expected it wouldn't turn out to be a traditional retelling and I think there's also that kind of I guess like questions of authenticity and also like who kind of has the right to tell the story like it's still quite a recent tragedy felt a bit like voyeuristic to kind of completely just retell the event and all the things kind of combined to be like, actually, it's more interesting to, you know, use it as a springboard to tell a story that is about the town, but not about the town. It's about the poisoning, but it's not really about the poisoning, if that makes sense. Yes, yeah, yeah, um, yeah. To kind of use it as a springboard. And, you know, I love that idea of just taking an idea and, you know, using it to conjure a completely different world, to mm. have that freedom to really explore it without kind of feeling so tied to a specific story or something, um, you know, too limiting.
0: It's always an interesting question with, I suppose, even though it's very recent, we could roughly put it in the category of sort of historical fiction. It's always an interesting question because it is always fiction. But some books try and get as close to the reality as possible. It's always a really interesting question about, yeah, where is the line with that? But I I must say it really came across because I have to admit, Sophie, I've got a terrible memory. So I'd read your letter with my proof that says like sort of two booksellers sort of explaining where the idea had come from. And I'd read that ages ago when I first got the proof. And then I went to read the book and I'd forgotten about the initial story. And at the beginning, I remember thinking, oh, yes, I'm getting sort of like mid-century Sort of French vibes, but I loved that kind of. I also wasn't quite sure where we were, and then I went back to the letter and I thought, oh, of course, you know. So that the flavour is kind of still there, if that uh, if that makes sense. Mm. But you've got you've built this kind of new world from it. That's really yeah evident from reading.
1: Thank you. Yeah, it was fun to work, I guess, within the limitations of a real world, but also to you know have the freedom to kind of invent some stuff.
0: So, you grew up in Wales, and then for studying, did you move elsewhere? Did you study within Wales at university, or did you go elsewhere?
1: I know. I went to Warwick, so I moved to Coventry.
0: Oh, yes, yeah, yeah. I grew up in um, Stratford Up and Avon, oh, no, so. No, no yeah lemington was i'm familiar with um did you ever go to smack
1: yeah i did go to
0: smack. <laughs> i can't believe it the novelist sophie mcintosh went to smack yeah oh goodness Doing goodness that's apple um, sours
1: and dancing to oh, terrible apple sours.
0: <laughs> don't, don't remind me of apple sours goodness me anyway sorry to our listeners um who are not familiar with the Levington Spa <laughs> nightlife scene of the kind of um, what time would that have been? When did you study there? Uh, so
1: it was 2008 to 2011.
0: So and that was to study English, did you say? Yeah,
1: you so that English, English at Warwick, but they've got really good um, creative writing program. So I did. Mm. So they had um, it's quite unusual, I guess, in terms of universities in the UK because they had a English degree, but you could also like take some creative writing modules, and it was a really nice cohort and a really nice sort of team. So, yeah, that was kind of um, what I ended up doing and it was it was really, really nice. It was kind of, you know, as a student, it was kind of the dream of, oh, I can do some English modules, some boring mm-hmm. English literature modules, not, not boring, but you know what I mean, kind of more <laughs> academic, then you could also have the yep. option to do some more creative projects. And I, oh, I think that's when I kind of realised that I could actually maybe write a book because for my dissertation in third year, you could either do like a 10,000 word a kind of academic essay or you could do a 10,000-word creative project which might be like a novella or some short stories or even you know poetry so I kind of ended up going I ended up going for that and just realizing that you know working on a long project was absolutely amazing and um, you had that you had to do an essay alongside it as well kind of es- essentially explaining like why you'd written what you'd written which was the bit that everyone hated but I also kind of loved that because I would never really thought that critically about why I was writing what I was writing mm. and you know thinking about influences and thinking about I guess like form and style that kind mm. of deeply and so actually that was kind of super transformative.
0: And is that something you you still sort of even if informally like to do now kind of put into kind of clear words you know this is what I'm doing with this novel and like this is kind of my influences is that something you still do to this day?
1: Just kind of like in notes, I have a really messy writing process, but I have um, a lot of tabs open in Word, and I just have like one page, which is actually like random notes, and I, I kind of write down like themes and stuff, so if I'm ever like, what am I actually writing about? I can just go back and be like, themes. Yes. And <laughs> <I laughs> remind myself <laughs>
0: I'm imagining, yes, I'm imagining a very chaotic amount of tabs. I'm imagining a whirring laptop, which is like, because so many things are sort of open while you're writing. I feel like
1: every every novel is like a race against time to do it before my laptop crashes and I lose all my 20 tabs, some of which are like probably unsaved, or the names like V4 Tense Experiment. <laughs> yeah,
0: <laughs> I love the idea that that's like the ultimate kind of clock to have on your work is... Either the work is finished or the laptop dies. Like <laughs> one has to happen.
1: Yeah, I did have a. Uh, I did like not turn on my laptop for three days a few weeks ago when I went on holiday and I came back and I actually wouldn't turn on and I was like, no, I haven't backed it up for, for ages. <laughs> oh,
0: no. But it, it's sorted. Yeah. Yeah, novel. Okay. So novel four whatever it may be is is safe for now safe
1: for now <laughs>
0: yeah, safe for now and survive for now good i hope that i hope that continues and at university you know in your studies did you come across uh, i mean some people from studying english literature even creative writing can be put off certain books because they had to kind of dissect them and study them but was there anything that stood out for you that you came across during your studies that you you really enjoyed or you really got your teeth stuck into
1: um, I did a module that was an English literature module and it was about literature post 9-11. You know, I kind of, my idea of, of university and, you know, we'd done a lot of stuff like Gawain and the Green Knight and, you know, mm. kind of more older books and so my idea of university was like, you know, we're going to study a lot of stuffy old books that actually work was really good in terms of having quite a lot of quite interesting modules and you had a lot of freedom about kind of designing your own, you know, the structure of your course and picking things that were interesting to you, like I did some poetry modules and so do this one that was, yeah, post-9 level fiction, it was actually, like, really, was really interesting and kind of opened me up to a lot of American writers, uh, like, sort of more contemporary writers. I remember reading, like, um, I think it's like the grammar book of the American short story and, you know, learning so much about craft just from kind of reading that in class and just, yeah, I guess, thinking in terms of how, I mean, it sounds kind of really obvious, but, you know, how can kind of, you know, uh, modern events shape contemporary literature. Contemporary literature is something that's always like evolving even in our time you know it's not like English literature isn't studying books that were written hundreds of years ago but it's about how you know language informs our experience of the world and how we're processing things like in real time and that was exciting. And in
0: terms of Sophie Mackintosh today, three-time novelist, do you still have time for reading yourself? Is it, is it something that you still enjoy doing or does the kind of your own writing take up a lot of your a lot of your time
1: I do still really love reading but yeah I don't kind of get to do as much as I want anymore um just I think at the moment it's just sort of like incredibly busy there's been a lot of kind of grant stuff and women's prize stuff and I've had a busy time work-wise which is like yeah really great <laughs> um yes, so it's been nice yeah. kind of getting sort of a handle on that but um I definitely you know I miss kind of having a limited time to write but I think I'm hopefully gonna be entering a quieter more meditative stage so I can do some sort of lying on the sofa reading I have like such a massive pile of books that I really want to get to or you know things I've started and I'm just like desperate to get back to it do you you know what um one of my favorite places to read is the bath and i think it's because it kind of feels like kind of functional but also fun but my when my taps is broken and i like really noticed that my reading has kind of dropped off because i don't have (laughs) it feels kind of just so much more luxurious to sit down and have a read than to like somehow be in the bath and have a read and be sort of washing myself at the same time i don't know (laughs) it's so weird
0: (laughs) i love that because your your reading space has been compromised by the broken tap it's like it's it's throwing you off you're like i need that <laughs> i need that bath i need i literally bath. need to like
1: That's buy one bit for it and it'll be fixed but that, it's like it's weird how sometimes like those tiny little barriers are kind of things that make quite a big impact oh. on your like you know your productive working or artistic life
0: oh, oh absolutely i the amount of small jobs i'm capable of putting off and then they suddenly in my mind become these like great monsters because I'm like, I know I'm putting it off. And then you do it and you're like, oh, that only took five yeah. minutes. Why did I seem so exhausted by that idea when actually it was, yeah, it's fine. Yeah, that's uh, that's the human experience right there, I feel, for most people. But I'm sure there's organised people out there who aren't like that, but I, I I don't know what it would be like to live like that. Yeah, me. <laughs> I'm trying, but yeah. And in terms of something you've read recently, are there any sort of particular books that stand out for you that you've really enjoyed in the last sort of year or so?
1: Yeah, so I'm reading a book um, at the moment actually called Close to Home by Michael McGee. And yeah, it's set in Belfast and yeah, I'm really, really enjoying it. And I'm also just, I've just finished a book called Study for Obedience by Sarah Bernstein, which is not out yet. She's also on the grantor list, but yeah, it's like I completely like sort of devoured it in about two sittings. Like it was very, it's very strange and but very kind of beautiful in terms of languages. Kind of, I, I just wanted to... You know, reread and reread and underline mm-hmm. a lot. Um, I, I have, like, a terrible memory <laughs> for books lately. I think I need to start, like, writing down kind of what I read because sometimes it just kind of slips out of my brain. But sometimes I am on like, you know, I've, I've been lucky sometimes to be on a good reading kick and be really enjoying Michael's book in particular. And I also read a really good um, non-fiction book recently. I've been trying to read a bit of nonfiction uh, called Sea State by Tabitha Lasley about a woman who goes to study men on oil rigs to kind of find out about their life, but ends up sort of falling in love with one of them. It's, it's really amazing.
0: Oh, wow. That sounds, yeah, really fascinating. I love those non-fiction books that, you know, the one line kind of subject of what's happening. You think, oh, I'd have never thought I would have read a book about that. But suddenly the idea seems like the most exciting mm. thing in the world. Yeah, you know? well, I kind of
1: love as well. Like, it kind of makes me think about my own... You know, practice as a fiction writer, obviously, but that sense of, you know, we're talking about you take an idea and it kind of acts as a springboard and actually the book Mm. becomes something else. Like, you know, the idea of um, an author wanting to go write about the lives of men on an oil rig, but actually the book becomes about, you know, having an affair with one of them and that kind of like, Mm -hmm. you know, obsessively, you know, falling in love with someone and in a sort of really strange environment isolated from everywhere else like it's kind of like mm. I, yeah it's, it's really good <laughs> pretty much is what I was saying.
0: <laughs> yeah no no absolutely and and oil rigs for me I don't know there's something inherently I find them very creepy mm. for some reason they're just out there in the sea it's something about I have a thing about the deep sea and that's yeah so great yeah that sounds like that ticks a lot of boxes I, I, I uh, set the
1: water garden um an oil rig in like the first draft I'd sort of be, it'd be such a good, like, I think it was, what's that, like, this that micro nation, and it's, like, set an oil rig in the channel, or something. Oh, yes, uh, see something, yeah, yeah, wasn't it? See yes. The name, but, um, it, it? Yes, Yeah, and I, I think that kind of, that was really interesting to me, but it was actually in the event, you know, trying to figure out the logistics of how people survive in a sort of yes. climate change Britain on an oil rig, how do they get food, how do they get anything, it was just, it was kind of sometimes I guess the logistics actually get in the way of telling the story. And I was like, maybe it just needs a setting that's a bit more um, realistic.
0: (laughs) Yes. Yeah. I bet that's very hard when you, you know, you have, because there's something so evocative about, you know, people living on an oil rig in this kind of like climate change kind of slightly post-apocalyptic sort of landscape yeah it
1: was such a good pitch it was like the oil rig novel and it was really hard to lose that like my agent was very like i know you like are really attached to the oil rig but (laughs) i think we have to lose the oil rig and i was like i i think i know you're right but i just don't want to lose the oil rig like it's really the oh so sad
0: (laughs) i imagine like a hand-drawn like a R.I.P. kind of like grave on a piece of paper, like R.I.P. the oil rig and just stuck somewhere because it's like... I can't believe I lost it hey there might be a future Sophie McIntosh novel yeah I still
1: might
0: write but, the great oil um, rig novel <laughs> <laughs> the great the world's the world's waiting for it Sophie the, we, we want that oil rig novel um okay yeah so yeah lots of uh, interesting things that you've um you've been reading at the moment uh, and it sounds like again like quite varied would you say you're quite a varied reader or are there particular types of books that kind of grab your attention more
1: like, I definitely, you know, I definitely kind of, the, the, there's kind of things that always catch my attention, like anything kind of really formally interesting or, you know, fragmented or kind of just something that pays attention to language, I really love. But I also kind of, I will read lots of things. Like, if, when I was on holiday and I'd run out of books, so I was in Turkey and they had lots of kind of books by the pool that you could just like borrow and, you know, they're kind of like, marion keys and stuff which i you know enjoyed as much as any of the book and i think they're really good stories and i don't really like yeah i don't believe in book snobbery and i'll read pretty much anything that comes my way um not to say like i'll kind of you know not say i love everything but I'm kind of willing to give everything a chance
0: and in terms of cursed bread you know we've sort of hinted at the you know we've hinted at the story but for the listeners out there who haven't come across your third novel just yet uh, can you give us a brief sort of description of Cursed Bread and and the story?
1: Um, So Cursed Bread is a story set in a town in South France in 1951 it's based on a true event during which the inhabitants of this town were struck down by violent hallucinations but the actual story itself is more focused on two characters Elodie and Violet. Violet is a newcomer to the village Um, Elodie is the baker's wife, and they sort of fall into this toxic relationship against the the backdrop of a summer where sort of strange things are happening in the town. There's a sort of sense of discontent. Um, Yeah, so it's kind of a bit of a study of kind of obsession and claustrophobia, but also against the backdrop of this uh, kind of mass poisoning and mass kind of hysterical event.
0: And where did you first come across this real historical event?
1: I literally just read something like on Twitter, something I clicked on, some kind of, you just, you know, the websites are like, oh, strange than the fiction, this thing happened. Yes, yeah, I read yeah. about the town that went mad, and I was like, okay, I'm, I'm willing to be distracted <laughs> right now. Um, yeah, I remember having, like, little notes in my phone of, kind of, stories that were interesting that was like, maybe I could return mm. to, you. and there was one about, like, a mass hysteria event about um, nuns that all started meowing, <laughs> and then I still had this one, like, oh, ne- wow. next to it. I was like, town in France where everyone had hallucinations, poison flower, and I was like, hmm. I think that, that one seems, like the one that I could like return to. I just kept thinking about it all the time and the sense of, you know, the bread, which is meant to be so everyday, how that could kind of mm. possibly be the cause of the, the town essentially completely losing its mind and everything mm. you know kind of being turned upside down. Um, but there was also some really weird, the- well, there's some quite outlandish theories around it, like there's theories that um, it was a CIA experiment and that is kind of actually the one I explore a bit as well in coast Bread* because it was never kind of definitively proved and there's still a lot of people out there who really believe in these like alternative theories about what happened so that was pretty kind of really interesting to explore.
0: Mm. I think particularly in the age of I don't know it's so interesting that the the way you came across that initial event that was the sounding board for the novel was kind of online because yes there's such a, a hunger out there for you know I find uh, when I'm you know, scrolling, for my sins, scrolling TikTok, you know, some of the videos that come up are, oh, did you know in in this state? And it's some, you know, kind of intriguing story. And even if while you're watching it, you think, oh, you know, I shouldn't be watching this, or I know I am maybe not getting the full story. You can't, there's something that really draws you in. And yeah, it must have been really interesting to explore those kind of, you know, different theories, because that seems to be such a big part of our world now is kind of events happening. And then all these different theories kind of rushing in and everyone kind of trying to work out you know what do I believe here so to explore that in a fictional way through you yeah must have been yeah really a really interesting process
1: yeah definitely it's like kind of again an idea of like historical speculation but also you know there's so much information out there and you never know exactly what's true and it's, it's kind of mm-hmm. interesting with everything at our disposal to actually like not really get to the bottom of something because it happened a while ago and yeah.
0: Yes, and I know um, in what you've written about the book, notes to booksellers and things like that, a word that really stuck out for me was unravelling. Of course, this town through this event, you know, kind of it completely unravelled, but a person sort of unravelling as well and the very sort of depths to a person. That's something that really stands out with the kind of the central characters. And did you know you wanted to explore it through that very sort of, um, you know, personal to the character kind of way, as opposed to kind of looking at the, the whole town?
1: No, definitely. Um, I mean, I tried to get some bits kind of focusing more on the inhabitants of the town. But I think for me, it always felt like it was going to be a character study and just like super analogies head. You know, she only kind of really registers other people in the town as they kind of, you know, relate to her obsession, really, and her kind of Mm. her sense of herself. It's like very not about the inhabitants of the town. Um, I always think, you know, with every book, it's a bit, like, overwhelming if you think about how many different ways you could tell a story and, like, mm. how you could, I could have written a completely different book that, you know, it could have been put in from the perspectives of lots of different people that the town. Yeah, the book that I wanted to write was just, like, very much, like, laser-focused on Elodie and her unraveling and her sort of losing herself. It's almost like she kind of is barely noticing, like, the poison <laughs> until right at the end where suddenly she's like, <laughs> oh, okay, this is this is happening.
0: <laughs> yes. It's so interesting, because as an idea, this kind of, these styles of mass events, you know, they feel so dreamlike in its kind of look at kind of obsession, but they have kind of peppered history which is also really interesting because I remember reading once about the is it the is it was it the Prague dancing Mm. um where just people in Prague in I forget when it was like sort of 1500s or yeah there was
1: Salzburg actually I know um Kieran Millwood Targrave a great book about this last year, I think. Yeah, the the dance tree. Yeah, no, it's, oh, it's so yes, interesting. Oh yes, of course, yeah. yeah.
0: Which I think is just um going to bookseller mode now. It's just come out in paperback, oh. I believe. Um,
1: <laughs> great, great book. <laughs> yeah. Um,
0: yes, yeah, yeah. Um, but yes, it feels like such an interesting way of exploring kind of human nature because I feel we have, and I suppose coronavirus was a, a sort of version of this where we're sort of these events that kind of make us aware that everything's a bit of a veneer, Mm. that, you know, we have our little routines and, you know, that's very safe and lovely. But these things can happen that kind of unravel the world around us. And when that happens, you kind of learn things about yourself Mm. as well. So it's such a potent, yeah, potent idea. In
1: the book as well, I think, you know, they've just had the massive trauma of the Second World War as well. So the idea Mm. of, I guess, a town that is kind of almost like ripe to sort of be re-traumatized that sounds kind of horrible but you know like a town where anything could kind of happen because actually things seem normal but things are like very not normal people are still Mm. dealing with a lot of things that they haven't really processed and that was kind of interesting in the sense of I guess the coronavirus this idea of like writing it during this time of like collective grief where everyone was just like okay the world is completely different like is it ever going to be is it ever going to be normal again like I can't I I can't touch anyone, I can't see anyone, like, it's really scary, Mm. we don't know what's going to happen, you know, life as you know it has totally changed and we don't know if it will go back, so that was kind of, Mm. yeah, definitely a weird time to be writing it as well, and looking back on the process of writing it now, it's like, oh yeah, it's like so much a pandemic novel, like, again, like, it's strange to think of it as such, because it's definitely not about the pandemic, but yeah, like, just the process of, you know, writing it in such it feels funny to me because I mean I couldn't touch anyone it's like it's like such a Mm. horny book essentially and it's like it's (laughs) it's like writing all these like sex scenes and I'm like I literally can't touch anyone and I can't like (laughs) see another person
0: (laughs) oh yes sort of longing and yeah desire are you know they're so it's so potent in the book but not just with Elodie as well just in the sense of kind of all the other characters yeah there's a real yearning there but it you know it's a real powerful source in the book that kind of you know pulls you along and there's also something so you know easy to connect with with um Elodie's sort of looking back on past events and kind of turning them over and kind of going through them again I think when we are all kind of stuck in our homes not able to touch anyone we were sort of looking back on past events i think there's a lot of kind of introspection you know and certainly i'm sure everyone could connect with you know the whole thing of thinking oh at that party i said that thing was that terrible did everyone hate me for that you know that kind of like social anxiety kind of like combing over little moments again feels so despite the kind of extraordinary nature of the story feels just so human Mm. and something that you can really connect with
1: I definitely kind of wanted also like that feeling of sort of like rumination and trying to make sense of something that you can't really make sense of like to have that feed into like the you know the structure and the style of it like you know she repeats herself a lot and there's a lot of kind of going over the same memory or same image and sometimes it's a little bit different and that was actually quite funny editorially because I was like, oh, I don't want to feel like I'm just repeating myself and I don't want people to think, like, she's already said this, like, three pages ago, or, like, oh, she's got this detail wrong. I was like, no, I did that on purpose.
0: <laughs> yes. <laughs> <laughs> I was like, trying to, like, just capture
1: that feeling of, like, when you're, like, so stuck in your head and you're, like, going over and over and over and you're, mm. you're just, like, if I could just remember it, like, one more time, I can figure out something i can you know understand it and get some kind of closure
0: we'll get a sound bite of you going i did that on purpose just so <laughs> you know that's on social media and you can always just share that when you're like <laughs> fyi everyone i did that on purpose but just one thing i found really interesting as well and one thing i really enjoyed is um the discussion of clothes in it there seemed to be a real uh, certainly for elodie a real sort of look uh, you know importance in kind of clothing um what Violet's wearing, but also what she's wearing and what other people are wearing. And I, I've just that detail really intrigued me and it really brought me in. I found that so enjoyable.
1: Mm. I think I just I guess clothes are like just an easy signifier, especially <clears throat> mm. you know, for the kind of different like sort of different classes and like different places. It's also something like I, I I think I'm a quite tactile writer. I just really enjoy like those kind of descriptions. They really I guess, situated you like physically, like if you kind of can imagine the cloth, you can imagine how it would feel. Mm. It's quite like a sensual experience. I think it kind of gets you quite into the book and its textures.
0: Mm, absolutely. Um, and
1: I also like, I, I also like really like clothes. <laughs> it's kind of fun to write yeah, about. No, absolu- yeah, no, absolutely, yeah,
0: absolutely. They're an endlessly fascinating thing. But yes, it's this incredibly sort of, yeah, potent story. And of course, it's out there now and people will be enjoying it. But I wonder for those who are listening who haven't come across it yet, would you mind reading a segment um, yeah. from Cursed Bread for us?
1: I'll just read a little bit from the beginning. When I recall the first time I met Violet, it embarrasses me. I hold the memories up to the light and think, did it really happen like this? And even if it did, why not tell it differently? More more generously. Why don't I pretend, even to myself? There's nobody left to know, nobody who could catch me out. I could say that she came in and took my hands in hers and looked into my eyes and said she always wanted a friend, a true friend, that she could see we were alike with twin ravaging hearts and our ribs. My doll blouse could not conceal that from her. I could say that she picked me out of everyone in the town. Was drawn along the sun-bleached stone of the pavements by hunger, by instinct, to where I had always stood, waiting. I could say a lot of things, but perhaps it's best to be honest now. I didn't sense her walking towards me on that chill morning in early spring, didn't notice her opening the door to the bakery. Her hair was dark and loose, spilling over her stiff white blouse and the lace at its collar. She hung behind the other customers looking at the loaves stacked behind me one by one, as if making an important decision. The other women in the shop greeted her. "'Welcome,' they said. "'We've been expecting you.' She smiled at that, and I had to stop myself from brushing my hand against hers when I passed her the loaf she finally chose. But I couldn't say much to her. I was afraid of her. She thanked me and left, and through the window I saw her pause and open the paper bag for a second, as if she was considering tearing into the bread like a dog. But she didn't. She closed the bag and then was gone. I stared after her until the next customer, I don't remember who, interrupted me, impatient for their breakfast. You've seen a ghost, they joked, snapping their fingers.
0: Wonderful thank you so much and another thing I must say and I know this is probably absolutely not the point at all and you'll be like what a ridiculous thing to say but the descriptions of the bread in the novel also made me very hungry because <laughs> I, I love I love bread and there's a real like hunger in the novel as well and I, I just found reading it that it just made me want to go to a bakery and p- pick up a fresh loaf which again for those who have listening and read the book you'll be thinking that's a ridiculous thing to say because, <laughs> bearing, bearing in mind what happens but um, um, also
1: so in you know in lockdown people were baking a lot of sourdough <laughs> but I actually couldn't do because I didn't have a functioning oven for the entirety of lockdown no. so maybe maybe cursed bread wouldn't have been so bready if I could have actually uh, baked some bread <laughs> yeah.
0: if you had got I love I love the idea that cursed bread is just an expression for the desire of carbs that you weren't able to how did you survive was it all hob and microwave or did, did you have a hob
1: we had a hob yeah um hob we and ba- barbecue. actually barbecue. I did, I did. think it, Everyone has those kind of like quite unhinged moments of lockdown in retrospect. There was a moment I baked a loaf of bread on the barbecue.
0: (laughs) Why not? I put it in like
1: a cast iron pan and then I put the, it was one of those big barbecues with the lids. I just put it Oh yeah. I think it worked pretty well.
0: Oh good. It it worked. Yeah. Listen, we had time to experiment. We were doing all sorts of things, you know, it's, yeah, it's baking bread in a barbecue. I like that. There's a, there might be a future Sophie McIntosh, uh, baking without an oven (laughs)
1: book
0: (laughs) you do a a complete yeah left turn into um, alternative bakery books anyway yes that does unfortunately I think bring us to the end of our conversation Uh, Cursed Bread is out now Um, it's available at Mostly Books in store and on our website or at your local independent bookshop as well Sophie thank you so much for joining us
1: thank you so much for having me
0: Mostly Books Meets is presented and produced by the bookselling team at Mostly Books, an award-winning bookshop located in Abingdon, Oxfordshire. All of the titles mentioned in this episode are available through our shop or your preferred local independent. If you enjoyed this episode, be sure to check out our previous guests, which includes some of the most exciting voices in the world of books. Thanks for listening and happy reading.